I think there's uh, never been a time where the past has had more wisdom to give. We should not go bluntly against all the teaching of human experience. And just as uh, Welsh thought there's, uh, it was in the past, there wasn't a time where we had more to learn from the past. I think today we have a lot to learn from the past. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. You've probably heard some version of the quote, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. And as we're going to find out today, that can apply to medical history as well. My guest is Dr. Ralph Ruban, and we'll be discussing the new book he's written with Will Lindner, titled A Scientific Revolution, 10 Men and Women Who Reinvented American Medicine. As we're discussing the book, you'll see how far American medicine has come, but in some other ways, history might be repeating itself. All right, here's Dr. Ralph Ruban. Well, first of all, thanks for being back here today for the second time on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Dennis, for including me. It's always a pleasure to uh, meet with you. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, your new book, which is called A Scientific Revolution, 10 Men and Women Who Reinvented American Medicine. The first place I want to start with that is, why did you choose to write this, this particular book at this particular time? Great question. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, first and foremost, I, I, I want to let your audience know that I don't receive royalties for the book. I gave up uh, royalties. This is really a work of passion. Okay. Uh, so in, in speaking about it, I want to make it clear. I'm not trying to sell the book to make money to anyone. Um, but that, a great question, why we wrote this book at this time. And it really, this book was born out of the pandemic. You know, I think what the pandemic did is it isolated us. And uh, the second thing it did is it led many people to question uh, the value of science, uh, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers. And so what I wanted to do is to tell stories that would bring us together as a community, as a, a medical community, that uh, these shared stories would unite us at a time where the pandemic was dividing us. And the second thing I wanted to do because of the emergence of anti-maskers and, and anti-vaxxers is to tell the story of how hard-earned science has been, you know, how people gave their lives uh, fighting viruses to, uh, so vaccines could be developed. And here people today are throwing away this uh, invaluable science. So I really wanted to do two things. One is uh, bring us together and then tell the story of hard-earned science. And then the third, uh, and I'll, I'll quote from uh, William Osler, who said, you know, uh, what more delightful in literature than biography, and yet how uncertain and treacherous is the account which any man can give of another's life. And there's something absolutely delightful about uh, biography. And so I wanted to, uh, that was a third motivation for me. Okay, I see. That, may, that makes a lot of sense, putting it in the context of, like you mentioned, the anti-maskers and the anti vaxxers and kind of anti-science that you're uh, trying to show that this sort of struggle with science is not new, that that's been happening for, for centuries, it seems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, how, how things we take for granted. And therefore, I think because we take them so much for granted, we easily discard them. And yet, if we truly appreciated how hard-earned they were, uh, we would put greater value in them. Now, it seems like the initial idea for the book would have come out of your nine greats lecture series, which 
I believe we talked about the last time you were on the podcast, and this was a series of video lectures that you gave for Hopkins alumni in the summer of 2020. Now, so that was nine, and this book has 10, and I th- so I think the 10th one is Max Brodel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this book, uh, you're right, came out of the, the this lecture series I did for, uh, it's called Hopkins at Home. And uh, early in the pandemic, the university alumni office approached me and said they were uh, creating a series of lectures uh, as so many people were stuck at home uh, to reach out and, and educate and, and give people something to do, if you will. And they asked me if I would talk about pancreatic cancer, which is, as you know, is my area of uh, expertise and my area of interest. And I said, well, uh, that would be kind of boring for the average person. Why don't I give uh, a lecture on, on medical history, which was my hobby? And they said, that'd be great. Can you give five lectures? And I, I said, well, no, I can only give four. And having no idea what I would talk about for four lectures, uh, but I agreed to give four and then quickly studied and um, uh, identified the, the first nine for this uh, lecture series. And then uh, for the book, we, you're right, we added a tenth. But I, after I gave the, the nine lectures, I just loved the, the biographies. I loved the people, loved the messages, the arcs of their lives, I think, were so dramatic and had lessons for us today. And after I finished, I said, God, I'd love to write this and you know, create a book about it. And then one of the members of the audience, Will Lindner, who uh, I, I knew through the Hopkins alumni uh, leadership, uh, uh, called me up and said, I loved your lectures. Uh, would you be interested in, in working with me and together we can write a book? And I said, Will, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, so uh, Will and I sat down and, and started writing the book. And it really is just a wonderful story of many people coming together to, to help create it. Uh, so uh, Will and I started with the writing. My friend and colleague, John Goldstein, uh, helped. He got his son to help us with the uh, bibliography because I hate Chicago manual style and the bibliography. Nancy McCall at the archives, uh, the Chesney Medical Archives here, even though it was during the pandemic, was willing to open up the door and, and let me in uh, at a time where they're mostly closed. We reached out to a number of publishers, Simon and Schuster, put us in touch with Pegasus Books, which is one of their uh, branches, and they were willing to publish it. And then David Reaney, who's an amazingly talented medical illustrator here at Hopkins, came up and uh, offered, he said he would create 10 original portraits of each of the uh, uh, 10 we included in this. And to me, his David's portraits are just fantastic, and they help bring uh, each of these 10 to life. Uh, so the book is uh, started from this uh, Hopkins at Home uh, back in the summer of 2020, but really it's a team effort and and where a number of people uh, joined together to help create it. The portraits of each of the, the people in the book. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that because they all seem to be done in a similar style, which makes sense because the same person did them all. Yeah, yeah. David has such a he's, he has a, a beautiful eye for capturing the essence of people, and and a you know, little twinkle in each person's eye to me makes them more real. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said that the book idea was kind of yours and kind of inspired by a few other people asking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Now, how much extra research did you have to do on each of the people in the book? Because it seems like you had a from doing the lecture series, you must have had a really good idea about kind of the story of each of their lives. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I can tell you a little bit about the writing process because the okay. ship with Will was really 
uh, I, for me, so rewarding. So I, I love to tell stories. And uh, Will is uh, just great at uh, uh, coming up with evocative details, you know, and, and uh, the fine line. I love kind of the 50,000 foot view and, and he's an extraordinary talented writer. So it really, I think uh, working together with Will was for me uh, just a wonderful process in which we each added something unique to the, to the writing process that neither of us could have done on our own. And so Will actually used the lectures in, in, in many ways as a, a foundation for each of the chapters. But then you're absolutely right, kind of for the lectures, uh, the research was very superficial. And I had to do a deeper dive in, into each of our, our 10. Some of it was easy. The, the Max Bredel archives are here. They're just right across the street. And so I could go across the street and they let me in and I could spend uh, days uh, going through Max's stuff. The Chesney Medical Archive is a little bit more difficult because the university was technically closed, and would they allow me in? And you know, and how could I be there safely? Some of the others actually was quite amazing. There's a fair bit online. Um, so, for instance, Walter Reed and uh, Yellow Fever. Uh, there's some University of Virginia has extraordinary archives with digitized letters uh, available online uh, for the public. Uh, the Bryn Mawr School has a, a lot of Mary Elizabeth Garrett's letters digitized and online. And so it was a, a combination of trying to balance the pandemic and the limitations of the pandemic with our desire to do deeper dives into each of the 10. But it, uh, I think we, we, we managed and, and because of the willingness of some people to be flexible as well. I, I imagine just the idea of being involved in a project like this probably helped convince people to uh, let you do some of those things. Yeah, I think when you if you come with energy and excitement and and, and people uh, join in and 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 share with the in the product. Sure. What was the period of time of doing the research before you started the actual writing? So we did them in in series, not in parallel. So we started, you know, with the the first and and chapter in the book, Marilyn's Beth Garrett. And then as that writing is going on, then I'm researching the next uh, chapter, John Shaw Billings. And, and, um, and then, of course, you have to go back because you find a, you have a great quotation, but you can't find where it came from. And you have to, you know, trying to find that original quotation uh, so you can cite it uh, becomes a problem when you've got uh, tons of different places to look. So it's, it's, we did them in series which allowed me to, to kind of stay one step ahead with the research, but having to go back and fill in details as they were needed. And yet the, the story throughout the book, through all 10 people, it's somewhat chronological. You know, it, it jumps around a little bit, but it's, did you do that on, on purpose? Yeah, yeah, because I think we wanted to tell a story of, you know, uh, Mary Elizabeth Garrett, uh, this woman who was denied an education coming up with the idea because she was a woman coming up with the idea for uh, high standards in education and admitting women to John Shaw Billings, kind of the architect for bringing Marisbeth Garrett's uh, vision to reality. And then William Henry Welsh and, and William Osler and Halstead kind of uh, embodying uh, what they had in mind. So there's a natural uh, flow, if you will in terms of the progression of uh, medicine and the progression of scientific medicine. All of the 10 people in the book, they have a connection to Johns Hopkins, uh, which you also know in the, in the preface of the book. Now, why did you make the choice to have this connection to Hopkins? 
Um, great question, Dennis. So I, I think that to me, Hopkins, you know, many places contributed. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I have to say that first and foremost. Obviously, I'm here at Hopkins, so I'm most aware of Hopkins. But in the history of American medicine, Hopkins, I think, represents an inflection point. So, you know, if we go back to the uh, late 19th, uh, early 20th century, uh, to just understand what medicine in America was like, you know, and, and we talked about it in the book where Harvard's president, uh, Charles Eliot, in, I think in the 1860s, proposes written exams for the medical students. And, you know, the surgeon Henry Biglow has to say, you know, Eliot actually proposes to hold written examinations for the degree of doctor of medicine. I had to tell him he knows nothing about the quality of Harvard medical students. More than half of them can barely write. Of course, they can't pass written exams. I mean, these are doctors who can't write, you know. Right. And, and uh, uh, in the, again, a late 19th, early 20th century, where uh, at least 100 medical schools would accept anyone willing to pay. Less than 20% required the students to have a high school diploma. And I, I love the Flexner report that came out that said that American medical schools are filled with students too stupid for the bar and too immoral for the pulpit. Um, and this was the status of, of, of American medicine. And clinically, there, you know, there's a famous uh, uh, surgeon, Robert Liston, who lived from 1794 to 1847, who was famous because he was could take off your leg in two minutes, you know, do an amputation because a good surgeon was a fast surgeon before anesthesia. Right. And to give you a sense of the terror and horror of medicine, there's one famous operation in which he was doing a, an amputation and uh, did it so fast uh, that he cut his assistant's fingers off, the tips of the fingers off, and then nicked the person behind him. Now, the patient died of infection, his assistant died. And the story goes, the person behind him who either scared or, or, or actually cut died. So, you know, three people died in one operation. And, and this was the status of, of medicine in America and the United States. And the founding of Hopkins really fundamentally, that's the inflection point, I think, where, you know, it was the one medical school that required students to have a college degree. They had to be fluent in French and German, had to have a strong background in science. It was the one place where medical students were brought to the wards to actually see a, a patient. It was the one place that started science applied to medicine. And after Hopkins opened in 1893, it kind of became a model of its kind and that was then emula emulated elsewhere. So um, uh, one, uh, I chose uh, these 10 because I'm, I'm here at Hopkins, so I am biased. But two, I think Hopkins really represented this inflection point in place and time in American medicine. Right. Okay. And you, and you talk about that quite a bit throughout some of the stories in the book, how before that, uh, you know, Europe was kind of the leading, was kind of the leader in medicine at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of the people yeah. in the book, they went and they studied in Europe in different yeah. places yeah. before yeah. coming to yeah. Hopkins. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it started in Europe before Hopkins. They were, they were doing it right. We weren't. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to think, how how far American medicine has come from that time. Like you, you mentioned that, you know, many of them, medical students weren't able to read and write. And that's just, to think about that now is just, uh, it's mind blowing really. <laughs> yeah. So while you were writing and, and researching the book, were there any, was there anything that really surprised you or something that you learned that was brand new that you didn't expect? Uh, great question. Yeah, I think one you've alluded to, but it's not that long ago. 
right? That many of these people live. Um, the, you know, the, we, at the end of the book, we talk about Helen Tausig and Vivian Thomas. And mm-hmm. um, I was just at the Johns Hopkins alumni meeting, and there were people who knew Vivian and Helen uh, Helen Tausig and had stories to tell about them. And one of uh, uh, the uh, members of the audience came up and said, oh, I, I was a medical student here working in the emergency room. And this um, uh, black gentleman brought in his neighbor with pneumonia and stayed with his neighbor the whole night. And I had no idea who, who he was. He introduced himself as Vivian Thomas. And I asked what he did. And he said, oh, I worked with some surgeons, um, you know, and talked about how humble uh, Thomas was and how uh, uh, caring that he stayed with his neighbor all night in the emergency room. So, you know, it's not that long ago that these people lived uh, and there are people who knew some of them. Uh, so uh, second, how hard it was. And, and this, I, I think, to me is is so hard to, for us to imagine because, you know, today uh, we're obviously living in a, in a different uh, uh, time. But, you know, uh, I'll give an example, William Osler, who was uh, dedicated to, he would, treat his patients on the wars, listen to their heart sound. And then when they died, when he was up at McGill, he would do their autopsy. So he could correlate directly the heart sounds with the the findings at autopsy. And he develops tuberculosis of his hands uh, from it. You know, they were doing autopsies with their bare hands and talk about the sacrifice of these people. So uh, the first, not not that long ago. Second, uh, how hard it is. Uh, And then... um, uh, th- third, I think, is the beauty of, of what many of them did, and both visual beauty that some of them did, but the beauty of their art and their science. And whether, you know, it's Max Bradel and his beautiful medical illustrations with the wow factor, you know, that his art just jumps from the page to Dorothy Reed. Uh, distinguishing between tuberculosis and Hodgkin disease and showing that Hodgkin's disease is a distinct entity and where she herself illustrates this you know, 60-some page manuscript, a single author that she also illustrated. You know, So there's also, uh, uh, I'm in awe of some of the beauty of what was done. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And I think those are, those are kind of good lessons to learn, uh, you know, at, of course, as you're working on a project like this, but also I think for anybody, just how much effort and personal sacrifice these people put into what they accomplished. Yeah. yeah and some gave their lives, right? Just yes. Gave his life. Right. Um, uh, right. Right. This is the people of pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ralph Rubon. We'll be right back. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table behind a microscope or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need comfortable scrubs, The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Ralph Rubon on the People of Pathology podcast. You know, and, and one of the other things, it, several of the people, they faced unimaginable prejudices 
whether uh, racial or gender related. Now, this is obviously a timely topic, given the, the state of the world right now. And it starts really at the beginning of the book with Mary Elizabeth Garrett, who you mentioned a, a little bit earlier. I'm curious why you thought it was important to include a frank discussion of racism, sexism, and other prejudices in the book. Uh, a great question, Dennis. I think, you know, if we don't acknowledge the past, we're, we're going to be doomed to repeat it. And um, I'll even go a step further. If we don't, and being here at Hopkins, if we don't acknowledge uh, the racism, the, the gender bias, uh, the bias against uh, Jews, the uh, bias against foreigners, we're, we're not going to be able to address it moving forward. And so, you know, I think, for instance, uh, racism, when I think of my responsibility now as a department chair, I not only view the importance of equality in all of its forms, but kind of that we have a little bit of a debt moving forward. If you really understand how uh, people were treated in the past, moving forward, it's, it's not just about equality. We have a debt to pay and we have to, in some way, uh, acknowledge our past and people do it differently. But as we move forward, how are we going to pay that debt uh, that we have through our actions and our behaviors? And for me, it's a it's a strong motivator moving forward. Okay, I see. And you don't gloss over those aspects in the book. I mean, when it comes up, you you address it, and it's it's very honest. Like this is what it is. This is what they said. This is what they did, and you don't make any uh, excuses for that. No, 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 absolutely. Mm -hmm. That that makes sense, and I think it's that, like you said, that's important to Mm -hmm. to address that especially these days and figure out how to what you know what to do moving forward kind of along those same lines i mean you present the accomplishments of each person in the book and that's sort of the the highlight of each chapter but you also don't shy away from their flaws and a few of them had pretty significant flaws why why was that important to include yeah. So, uh, for instance, uh, William Osler, who's probably the greatest physician North America has ever produced, you know, and mm-hmm. who really defined uh, the philosophy of what it means to be a physician, uh, you know, and, and, and what it means to be a good human being from you know, consume your own smoke so that those around you won't be annoyed with the dust and sit of your complaints. You know, what an incredible uh, life uh, philosophy, you know, uh, lead a useful life and all, all these things that really help define uh, what it means to be a, a good person and a, and a great physician. At the same time, you know, we learn in the book that he held his own biases, his own prejudice. You know, he thought uh, it should be a white man's country, he wrote at one point. And so for me to recognize that someone as extraordinary, as great as William Osler held unconscious biases. He was not aware of these biases. He was born, you know, a, a British subject, right, in Canada. Um, and, and everything he did was very appropriate for his time. But yet he himself held these biases. And when we recognize that, then for me, I realize, you know, I also have my own unconscious bias and it helped me understand. I'll, I'll give you an example of how the book helped uh, uncover for me an unconscious bias. When Dorothy Reed, when we wrote about her, she wrote this incredible manuscript describing the, what is now called the Reed Sternberg sound, um, but then stopped 
in medicine because she was denied a position, a faculty position at Hopkins. She wrote this when she was a fellow. And uh, almost certainly the reason, part of the reason she was denied a faculty position was because of her sex, because she was a woman, but probably also because she was having an affair with William McCallum, who was a prominent uh, pathologist in the department. And I think Welsh didn't want an office romance. And uh, in, in the book, when we first wrote the chapter on Dorothy Reed, we quoted from her, her primary biographer who wrote about uh, Dorothy Reed and, and this episode that, uh, and I think the quote was, uh, she gave him her heart, he gave her fame. And it's because McCallum wrote in his textbook, Reed described, Reed described, Reed described, and really hit home that Reed was the one who described the Reed Sternberg sound. So we put that in the book. And my wife read it and said, what a terrible sexist comment, Ralph. How can you put that in? And I, I didn't see it as a sexist comment. And she said, well, what you're saying is women have to sleep with men if they want fame. And I said, well, that's not what I meant. And, and she said, well, you're not seeing it. And so even in the writing process, I uncovered my own unconscious bias you know, that, uh, and that was nicely highlighted in that story. So I think by highlighting the flaws of the people, we can highlight that we recognize in ourselves that we each have flaws and we should try to understand them and address them as best we can, many of which we're not conscious. Well, that, that makes sense. I think another aspect of that is these 10 people were kind of the heroes of medicine. And so you think of heroes as, I guess most people think of heroes as flawless. And it's important to realize that heroes can have flaws and do often have flaws and that's okay. And you can still strive to be like them, even with the flaws that you might have yourself, like you just talked yeah, about. Yeah. And learn from, you know, learn from the, their good traits and learn from their not so good traits as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's another thing, the the constant learning. I mean, uh, lifelong learning is something, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about on this podcast. And this is something that these 10 men and women have done. And it seems like you're still doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now let's talk about the story of Dr. Jesse Lazier, because this is, you know, he, he was one of the leading figures in the fight against yellow fever. And this story was interesting because there are quite a few parallels with the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, both in the gaining of the acceptance of the cause and then the dedication of the scientists fighting against the disease. So can we talk about uh, Dr. Lazier and how, how it parallels the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, another great question, and I I, I think there are, there are many, and I'll, I'll highlight two. For so, for instance, uh, with yellow fever, there was an early attempt to isolate areas. Um, you know, if, if it was in a in an area of a city, then you isolate that to prevent the spread of the pathogen. And then, as now, the the business uh, people, the businessmen, were against it. They didn't want to harm. You know, said don't. Don't isolate during a pandemic because it's going to hurt our business. And we see that today where there's this pull and tug where, OK, we need, you know, don't go to work because you're going to spread the virus versus business people who say, no, we need to do it. And we also see uh, prejudices come out. And it's uh, really, I think, uh, in the book uh, uh, described, uh, for instance, in the yellow fever pandemic in 1793 in Philadelphia, where Benjamin Rush the sign of the Declaration of Independence and the famous Philadelphia uh, physician uh, believes that uh, blacks are immune 
uh, to the virus while whites are susceptible. So he puts out a call and, and says, you know, uh, asking uh, black physicians, nurses and others to help fight the virus. So while all the whites flee Philadelphia, these uh, um, blacks uh, come to Philadelphia, stay in Philadelphia and help uh, treat uh, the patients who are dying. Of course, they're not immune to it. That was a, a racial myth. And they die at a rate equal to whites, uh, but they stay behind and, and heroically help fight, uh, help serve the suffering, if you will. And of course, the reward is uh, when uh, the whites come back to, to town, they say, well, accuse the blacks of having robbed them or stolen their, their, their items and things like that. So the racial prejudices that come out during a pandemic, I think we, we you know, as we see now, the blaming of certain ethnic groups, Chinese, uh, people call it the Chinese virus and things, uh, then is now. We see those same uh, stereotypes uh, rear their ugly heads, and uh, history repeats itself. And it's beautifully, uh, and I think it's John Barry's book, uh, The Great Influenza. I strongly recommend that book to everyone. Beautifully describes the the influenza pandemic. And when you read that, uh, boy, you realize some of the parallels between then and now. Again, history repeating itself. Great question. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Like we really these similar things have been have happened before in different pandemics and we really haven't it seems like we haven't learned from that because it keeps happening again and it's not anything new yeah yeah absolutely now what about i mean especially with with jesse lazier i mean he gave his life for kind of accidentally but he gave his life for it trying to find a cure for yellow fever and that kind of thing happens as well that just in spite of the uh, misinformation or disinformation. There are scientists and doctors and medical professionals that still that fight against these diseases, and some of them give their lives to do it. And that's that's another parallel between the yellow fever and COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely you make a great point, Dennis. I think you know early in the pandemic, before there was a vaccine, you had um, nurses, orderlies, uh, the phlebotomists, the doctors going up into the wards. And treating patients with a virus they knew was deadly, watching patients die before their eyes, you know, and then they take their mask off and they'd have these deep marks in their face from the tight N95 masks and dark circles under their eyes from working day and night, uh, helping to fight this uh, and treat the suffering from this uh, virus. Um, and, you know, that heroism should not be forgotten. You know, now we have a, a vaccine. It's, it's much safer. It's still people are dying. But boy, those men and women in the trenches early on, that they're, I'm so in awe of their heroism. Yeah, that, me too. Every time I hear a story like that, it's, it's amazing to me. And I wonder, I, I feel like I would have done the same thing, but I, I wonder because of, the, you know, the risk, like, you know, I, I'm not sure, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that they did. Another part of this, I mean, talking about, you know, there are stories and books written. You just mentioned uh, John Barry's book about the 1918 influenza pandemic. There are stories written about these things. And I talked with some pathologists uh, not too long ago from the History of Pathology Society. And one of them mentioned that it would be important to write down all of the stories from the COVID-19 pandemic to, to keep these things so, so that nobody forgets, I, I think I think was the point there. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and the, I, I love, you know, you need to tell the whole story, the big picture. But I, I also, being a lover of biography, the individual stories, you know, here, I was talking to uh, one of the female physicians, a young mother, who was uh, treating patients in the ICU and then didn't want to go home to spread because she was worried she would spread the pathogen, the virus to her kids. So stayed in a hotel here for a month, you know, never not being able to see her kids. So, you know, these these individual heroic stories and the arcs uh, behind them, I find so inspiring. Yes, I, I agree. And I, it, it's important to, to uh, somehow record those stories so that th- those so that we remember them for the next time. Uh, something you wrote in the epilogue of the book, and this was put, we would argue that a profession is ancient and important to society's well-being as medicine has its own storytelling tradition that can help us put the lives we have considered, and perhaps more importantly, our own lives and life stories into proper perspective. Now, I'm curious what you meant about perspective, like what might this perspective be? And then I want to talk about how or if your perspective changed as a result of researching and writing this book. Yeah, uh, thank you. And I, it's, I think it's an important point that as we define ourselves, the stories that we tell each other about, whether it's our work or our family or whatever, that, those stories help to define who we are, what we value, what we cherish, and, and what we uh, don't like in, in life, you know, the good and the bad. And we've talked about uh, some of the good and the bad as, as we, uh, in, in this interview. So in, in choosing these 10 and the arcs of their lives and the things that they uh, value, I, what we tried to do is uh, tell a small part of medical history or, or history and what we, what we cherish. And for me, the courage uh, of these 10, the commitment of these 10 and the compassion of these 10 uh, are, are so extraordinarily admirable as we move forward and deal with the complexities of life during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I, I hope in some small way uh, to bring the medical community together uh, through these shared stories and particularly courage, commitment, and compassion. I like that. That's, that's a great message. And it's, that maybe not only bringing the medical community together, but hopefully kind of the larger community as well, just from hearing these stories and, and realizing the work that these people have done and the impact that it's had on, on probably all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's what's next for you? Do you have any other projects on the horizon? Oh, yeah, great question. You know, right now I'm trying to get the word out about the book um, to to share with uh, uh, people. We, I, we're doing a, a little bit of a mini book tour. It was in uh, Chicago at the Seminary Book uh, Co-op. Okay. Uh, my brother worked at one point in, in the Alumni Society there, gave a talk here in Baltimore to the Ivy Bookstore and, and others. So uh, trying to uh, get the word out about uh, a scientific revolution uh, our, our book now. Um, thinking about the future, you know, for me, many of these projects are completely spontaneous, and those are the most fun. I think I, I mentioned you once before. I did a documentary on PBS about William Halstead. Uh, oh yeah, Herman of surgery here, and that was completely uh, spontaneous and out of the blue. This book, uh, you know, it came about quite by accident, as we talked about earlier in this interview. It came out of the uh, Hopkins at Home 
uh, lecture series and then, you know, happening to partner with Will, uh, my writing partner, to create it. And for me, uh, the the most fun, the best projects are those that are, are the most spontaneous. And what I also love is uh, being able to bring in other people to join the project, whether you know, David Reaney creating the medical, original medical illustration. So, uh, I, I don't have any specific plans right now, but I'm, I'm confident that something will, will come up out of the blue and, and create a spark uh, that will lead to a new project. I see. Now, being a pathologist assistant, I, I, I've got to ask, and I know we talked about this the last time, any thoughts about you know another edition of surgical pathology dissection? Oh, I'd love to do that. You know, right now as department director, I'm not in the trenches as much, but mm-hmm. Step down from this position. I, I'd love to do that. I, I love uh, working with our pathology assistants. They're just a fantastic group. We're trying to get them more involved in educating our residents. Um, so rather than just doing, but also teaching. And we're also getting them more involved in helping to uh, identify processes and other things that will make the labs more efficient. So absolutely the, uh, uh, look forward to the next edition of the book and including pathology assistants in them. Okay, that'd be great. That'd be great. I look forward to that. And I hope the uh, your inspiration for your next book uh, comes quickly. And, 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 and I look forward to that. Uh, th- th- it's been great uh, talking with you again. I really enjoyed the book, and I'll include a link in the show notes where people can pick it up. Um, and, and I'd highly recommend it to, to everyone. Dr. Ralph Rubin, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. I, I really appreciate it. And I, let me end with a quote from William uh, Henry Walsh, because I think okay. it sums it up is, I think there's uh, never been a time where the past has had more wisdom to give. We should not go bluntly against all the teaching of human experience. And just as uh, Walsh thought there's uh, was in the past, there wasn't a time where we had more to learn from the past. I think today we have a lot to learn from the past. And so thank you for allowing me to to share it with your audience today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love it. That's a great quote. Great big thanks to Dr. Ruban. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. This is my first conversation with Dr. Ruban, and then I'll be back with some final comments about this episode. My interest in pathology uh, became uh, very natural when I was in medical school. Um, My interest in pancreas pathology actually is kind of uh, unusual in that um, I was, after training here at Hopkins, uh, was interested in cardiac pathology and read all the heart biopsies here at Hopkins for years. And then one day the head of surgery, John Cameron, came into the sign-out room and he had done, I think, his first 100 or 200 Whipple resections and said he had a much, much better survival than anyone else. Um, he was uh, talking about it at the surgery meetings, but no one believed that he was actually operating on pancreatic cancer. So he needed someone to review these cases. And so I, my hand went up um, and I volunteered to read them. And together with John Boynton and Johan Offerhaus, we reviewed um, the first, I think it was 100 or 200 Whipples here at Hopkins. You can hear more from Dr. Ralph Ruban, including the origin of his surgical pathology dissection manual in episode 38. Well, it's always a pleasure and an honor to speak with Dr. Ruban, so I'm really happy we were able to have this conversation about his new book. All of the 10 people that are highlighted in the book, they all have interesting lives, so it makes for interesting stories. And you can read the book just as that biographies of 10 interesting people. But also, there are lessons to be learned, as we talked about during this episode. 
And these lessons will be helpful to anyone who's working in pathology or laboratory medicine, especially as Dr. Rubon pointed out, the lessons of courage, commitment, and compassion. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today, including a link to the book. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People with Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.